Welcome to the TJF Podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in policing for a few years. This podcast is all about what it was like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. How did it change? And more importantly, how did it come to be in a bit of a mess? I'll describe every job that I did over those years. Reading from my book, I'll also give you my thoughts about contemporary policey stuff. I'll interview anyone brave enough to come on and ask them what they think. My wife Kay is going to help me from time to time. There may be a little bit of swearing, so probably better to keep the kids out of the room or use headphones. Everything I say and write comes out of a place of love for policing and police officers. But I know that some people probably won't agree with what I say, and that's completely okay. All I ask is that you read or listen with an open mind. And if you go away feeling that you know more about what policing in Britain is really all about, and perhaps also have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello, everybody. Nice to be back again. Um, I've really missed you. Have you missed me? Um, Probably not, to be fair. Uh, Listen, uh, really full episode this week. Um, Lots of really interesting stuff. Before I talk about who our guest is going to be this week, I'm just going to go back over, as I tend to do, uh, one or two little things that have been going on during the week. So um, I dipped my toe into a new podcast on BBC, um, which is called Brixton Flames on the Front Line. And I, it's probably slightly counterintuitive that I talk about another podcast, um, because for every minute that you listen to that podcast, you're probably not listening to this podcast, are you? So, um, But I do think it's important that I um, just touch on it briefly because it's, uh, it marks the 40th anniversary um, of the Brixton riots in 1981. And um, it's presented by a big nasty night. Because I'm a 55-year-old 50, bloke, um, I've no idea who he is. Uh, I suspect some of the young'uns out there probably will know who he is. But, um, but he's the narrator. And uh, he clearly um, was born and brought up, I think, in that part of London. The thing that really um, I want to talk about, really, is... um, So I said really twice, I didn't I? Sorry about that. Um, The thing I want to talk about is the police input into that, in terms of what I've listened to so far, comes from a chap called Peter Blexley, who is an ex-Metropolitan Police officer and now a sort of media pundit. I believe he goes on things like Hunted and stuff like that. The way he describes policing back in the 1980s I've got to say, bears absolutely no relation whatsoever to the experience that I had of policing that part of London around that time, albeit I was there slightly later. I was there in the late 80s. But a lot of the people who I uh, worked with did work in that area at that time, and, and I've got nothing but good things to say about them. They were so capable, competent, dedicated, brave, courageous professional, really, really good people. You know, I'm not, you know, don't be, don't get me wrong, I'm not s- s- saying that there weren't individuals who 
had dubious, um, you know, behaviours from time to time, um, but they would generally get sorted out pretty quickly and the sergeants and the inspectors would kind of come down on them like a ton of bricks. But I've got to say, my experiences of policing that part of London around that time were absolutely not the way that Peter Blexley describes them. So he describes this kind of really horrible, brutal, corrupt, bullying, racist kind of approach to policing Brixton, which, you know, I just, I've got to say, I know I said this before, and I'm going to say it again. I worked in that area for um, four or five years in uniform before I went to Special Branch. I was really in the thick of it, uh, as, as, as we all were at that time. And I've, I can honestly put my heart, hand on my heart and say that I never once saw anything that was just absolutely blatantly, you know, someone being treated badly purely because of the colour of the skin. I just never saw it. And it wasn't like I was sitting in an office somewhere hiding. I was in, I was really in the thick of it during that period of time. Equally, uh, and again, hand on my heart, I never once saw someone getting beaten up or assaulted by a police officer in a way that you know, I mean, yes, we had violent confrontations with people uh, uh, on the street on the way back to the police station when they'd be kicking off in the back of the van and there'd be three or four of us trying to hold them down or protect ourselves. You know, that's entirely normal. That's that's called police work. You know what I mean? Show me a police officer in the country who hasn't experienced that. Um, but I never once saw anybody being assaulted in a sort of gratuitous sort of way. So, so Peter, I don't know if you're listening to this, mate, Honestly, seriously, seriously, mate, come on. I, you know, appreciate everybody's got to make a living, but all you're doing, mate, is further fueling this very um, kind of wrong-headed urban myth that police officers are corrupt, that police officers are racist, and, the, and they're sort of bullies. I know that's not the case, and, mate, you know that's not the case as well. So wind your neck in for the sake of all of us, Okay. Anyway, so I suppose as well as saying to Peter and people like Peter who are just playing into the hands of those who want to um, perpetuate this false narrative about uh, the way that the police were and are, I'd also say to people like the BBC, can you just maybe do a bit more due diligence about some of the people that you wheel on to, to do these things and actually check with other people? You might want to speak to others who, who might have a different view, different experiences, because the problem, of course, is that if you only speak to one person, you only get one point of view, and we don't know whether that person has an agenda, or whether um, they're just complete Walter Mitties, or whether they are just blatantly saying exactly what you want to hear in order to make a few quid. And just on that, if, if you go onto Twitter, I mean, the social media, police social media sites are kind of alive with outrage and frustration at, at, at you know, his comments. But if you want to read some of that for yourself, go on um, go on Twitter and look at hashtag... Uh, no, God, you can tell I know nothing about Twitter. It's not hashtag, is it? At Obsie, O-double-B-S-I-E, O-double-B-S-I-E. Now, that's Chris Hobbs. Chris and I worked together um, when we were in Special Branch in Scotland Yard many years ago. And he's a really good guy, Chris. And, um, and, and yeah, so he, he made a comment on it. And if you read some of the comments um, following on from his tweet... Um, then you'll get a flavour. Right, um, the, the main um, sort of bulk of today's podcast will be an interview 
I'm so, so chuffed um, that he's agreed to speak to me because he's a top bloke. He's been through an awful lot. And, uh, and I think what you're going to find him uh, saying is going to be really, really interesting. Um, so, so his name is, is Nick Bailey. And Nick um, was a detective sergeant uh, in Wiltshire Police for, I believe, 18 years. Um, I'll let him introduce himself properly. Um, but uh, sadly, he had to uh, was medically retired from the police. Uh, again, I'm not going to go into the details of all of that. That's not for me to talk about. That's probably him to talk about. He was medically retired, I believe, um, last year, um, sort of late, late sort of 2020. And he's got a, a really, really fascinating story to tell, a very disturbing story to tell, whereby he was uh, poisoned by the uh, Novichok chemical weapon that was deployed in Salisbury against uh, Sergei Skripal and his daughter, uh, Yulia Skripal. He was one of the first uh, investigators to attend that incident. And as a result of doing that, he was very, very seriously poisoned by the same nerve agent. Thankfully, he made a, uh, a more or less recovery. And again, it's probably for him to talk about in terms of the, you know, the extent of his recovery uh, I think it's fair to say that you know he, he really struggled to to get back to anything like the person he was before uh, and that then resulted him in him leaving the police so really interesting chat it's not an interview I don't I don't interview people I chat to them okay so yeah so we'll we'll have a chat to him uh, in a bit and I'm absolutely fascinated by hearing about what he has to say so before we move into that chat with Nick. I'm just going to go back to the book, um, still in sort of negotiation with publishing um, houses. Um, so hopefully that's going to be sort of sorted out uh, later on this week. But but yeah, I did say that I'd be dipping into the book, uh, not reading from it, but just sort of talking uh, and adding a bit more sort of colour and flavour to some of the chapters. So the bit that I want to talk about this week is is the selection process that I went through uh, and everybody else that I worked with went through back in the eight, late 80s. It was really uh, quite comical when we think back on it now. There was all sorts of um, weird stuff that you ended up having to do. And and yeah, it, it's, it's still one of those things that people talk about um, even today, 30, 35 years on, on police social media sites that we all kind of laugh about it. Um, so... When I applied to the police, so I told you all about my um, failed attempt to get into the British Army, or uh, or should I say the British Army's failed attempt to get me as an army officer uh, in one of the previous podcasts. So I decided to join the police, sent off my application form. I did my uh, familiarisation, uh, which was you can read about in the book, which was quite comical on occasions. And then eventually I was I was invited to... Um, come for my sort of selection processes, which, uh, again, anybody who's listening to this, if I'm getting any of this wrong, just send me a message and say you got that bit wrong or whatever. But my recollection of it was that you had to do a uh, medical just to make sure that you had sort of two arms and two legs and, and everything else. You had to do a physical, which was um, sort of running around, um, um, bending and jumping and press-ups and all of that nonsense uh, to make sure you weren't um, you know, you're physically up to the job, uh, you know, all the usual stuff getting weighed and, um, uh, you know, height measured and uh, various eyesight and hearing tests and, and all of that kind of stuff. But the bit that um, really kind of uh, sticks in my memory is the medical because it was just, I mean, 
weird beyond words, frankly. And, and, and even today, I still don't really know what it was all about. Um, I don't believe it had any basis in, in medical sort of rigour. Um, I don't even know who the people were who were doing it. Um, it was just very, very strange. And I'm, I'm convinced that uh, the results of all of that stuff are probably sat on some pornographic website on the dark web somewhere because I can't see any any kind of medical reason for doing it. So again, if you know what the medical reason was for the stuff I'm just about to describe, then I'm all ears, okay? So we all got called to this building, I believe it was in Paddington at the time, and um, so we'd, I think we'd already done our sort of running and jumping and um, whatnot, and and this was the, the sort of doctory bit. So we went in sort of in batches of about, I don't know, 30 or 40 of us at a time, and we were all shown into this big long corridor. At the end of the corridor, there was sort of some cubicles, sort of like proper old-fashioned, like Second World War vintage, um, you know, uh, cubicles with carry-on doctor-type uh, curtains on them. And... Um, we were told to go in there, strip off, put on our dressing gowns that we'd been told to bring with us for the occasion, and then line up uh, in a long line of, of, again, Second World War vintage chairs that if there'd been any less of a chair, there wouldn't have been a chair anymore, any bits of them missing. Um, there was basic a chair, as you can imagine. Sorry, I'm going on a bit about the chairs, aren't I? But sorry, apologies for that. Um, so we all took a line. Uh, sat in these, this line, and then whoever was at the front of the queue, there was a sort of a, a red and a green uh, light uh, above this door. And we were told, uh, as soon as you get to the front of the queue, and we're all sort of shuffling up the chairs one at a time, uh, as soon as you get to the front of the queue, and once the person comes out who's before you, and the light turns to green, then you go in. So... Uh, and, and one of the amusing, my, one of my amusing memories of that time was that uh, everybody had these different dressing gowns. So um, some of them had these like dodgy sort of um, dressing gowns, that sort of thing that your granddad would wear, you know, sort of like thick tartan things, you know, like something out of, you know, a 1950s Hitchcock film. Um, and, and some of the, um, you know, women were, were were dressed in these kind of rather skimpy looking Matahari type, you know, silk gowns barely covering the backside, and and others had these kind of long kind of nighties on. That was something like again your granny would wear. It was just such a motley and amusing um, sight. So anyway, uh, we sort of shuffled up the chairs one at a time, and eventually it came to my turn, and uh, the light went to green. I went and and walked in. I was in this room with which was probably about I don't know twenty foot by twenty foot. And behind a long desk, there was a sort of late middle-aged chap with glasses sort of perched on the end of his nose. Um, and two women in their probably late 20s, uh, mid to late 20s, sat either side of him. He didn't introduce himself, didn't say who he was, he just said, um, is it Mr. Donnelly? I was like, yes, it is. He goes, right, take your dressing gun off and go and stand in front of us. Uh, on Put your feet on those two black footmarks which were painted on the floor sort of side by side about I don't know eight or ten feet in front of the desk so I took my dressing gown off hung it up on the clothes peg behind me and went and stood on the the um the black footmarks and he sort of looked up from his 
documents, the, the, the chap who, I'm going to call him the doctor, I've no idea who he was, he might have been, he could have been some bloke they dragged in off the street for all I know. But um, he looked up and sighed and said, Mr Donnelly, can you please take your underpants off? You were told uh, to come in naked. And I was like, oh, terribly sorry. So I took my shreddies off. Um, I think I might have dropped them on the floor, you know, beside my dressing gown. And I returned, um, again, standing there, kind of bollock naked in front of them, and these two women, um, which was a bit embarrassing, to be fair. And uh, he then asked me some questions, which I can't remember what the questions were, and then he said, um, can you hand, hold your hands out in front of you, sort of shoulder width apart, uh, with your palms facing up? Uh, so I did that, and he said, right, turn your palms down, uh, which I did. Um, and they said, right, can you please turn around um, and bend over and touch your toes, please? Um, <laughs> uh, so I was thinking, I've never had a medical like this before, but you know what, fair enough, I'll do what I'm told. So I turned around and displayed my bum and balls uh, to him and the two women. Um, and he said, and that was it. He said, right, thank you very much, Mr. Donnelly. Um, you can go now. So I put my dressing gown back on and left the room. So I went back to the uh, my cubicle to get myself dressed again, thinking, what the bloody hell was that all about? So when I got back to the cubicle, I suddenly thought, oh, shit, I've left me shreddies in the bloody room, haven't I? <laughs> so I I kind of thought, oh, God, what will I do? Shall I, shall I just put my trousers on without them? But if I do that, then somebody will realise that I've left my shreddies in there and then they'll come and say to me, uh, these are your pants, Miss Tommy, why did you get dressed without them? Or, you know, the alternative was to kind of admit it, and in which case, you know, I look like a right idiot. So I thought the, the least worst option was to admit it. So I, I kind of went and grabbed one of the sort of members of staff who was sort of facilitating the whole thing. I said, excuse me, I'm terribly sorry, but I left my underpants in the room. And uh, she sort of looked at me as if I was a complete idiot. And she said, oh, God, wait there. And um, when the light went to green next time, she went in there, uh, retrieved my pants and kind of almost threw them at me. Uh, so I went back to the, the cubicle and got myself dressed and that was that. And then the next day, um, the uh, we had the exam, I think, test or whatever, uh, which was sort of numerical and verbal reasoning and stuff like that. And you had to write an essay. So we all... Um, kind of wrote our essays, answered our questions, and then basically um, the next stage was an interview. Now, I have absolutely no recollection of my interview whatsoever. Um, I think I was probably still traumatised by the old underpants thing the, the day before. But uh, but anyway, um, you know, I did get through. Uh, I'd like to think, you know, the fact that I was at university at the time, I was reasonably literate and um, able to conduct myself to an acceptable standard. So, so yeah, so... Um, so, you know, eventually I got a offer and, um, yeah, a date to join. So, so listen, there is a um, Tango Juliet Foxtrot Facebook page, which you can find. Um, I'd be really keen to hear stories from other people um, who might want to comment on some of the things I'm talking about in the different episodes. So, yeah, feel free to uh, come on there and uh, share your stories or correct me on any of these issues if I've got it slightly wrong because I am a bit I'm knocking on a bit 
yeah, the results of, you know, bringing up four kids, uh, many sleepless nights, all sorts of uh, nonsense in the job and uh, probably far too much alcohol have taken their toll. So anyway, uh, let's move on now and uh, move into the interview with Nick, uh, which I hope you find really interesting. Listen, Nick, welcome to the TJF podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have you as a guest. Um, you're someone who I've been following, you know, very closely. You know, I watched the the documentary all about Salisbury. Yeah, so it's just really, really fantastic to sort of be meeting you properly um, in the flesh, really. So, no, thank you, Ian. It's an absolute pleasure to to be on and thank you for your time and wanting to talk to me as well because that's one of those things is you just never know whether <clears throat> what you want to say or what you have to say is um it's going to be of interest to people so it's nice to know that it might be yeah no, it's, uh, it's <laughs> even if it's only to you it's de- <laughs> it might be it's definitely of interest I can I can I can guarantee that um listen just to just to sort of I know we've discussed this but just to kind of reassure anybody who's listening to this you know what the ground rules are that we agreed for this, I think it's uh, only fair to say that. So we're not going to be going into anything about the politics of, of what happened, um, sort of the geopolitical sort of ramifications, I suppose, because that's um, something that will be played out and managed by others elsewhere. And I don't think that's really the purpose of this chat anyway. It's just to talk to you and to, to, to get an account of, of kind of, you know, what happened to you and, and how that affected you. The other thing that we're not going to be talking about is the um, what what will be a, a live and ongoing criminal investigation, and, and I certainly don't want to say or do anything that's going to prejudice uh, that in the future. So, so yeah, absolutely, you're um, you're comfortable with that as well. I suppose the yeah, third... but yeah, abs- I, I am comfortable, and I think um, <clears throat> I mean just to point out about about the investigation, I, I have actually as much information about that as everybody else in in the world. Basically, I, there is nothing that I have. There's nothing that I know about about the ongoing investigation that, that the public don't know. It's um, right. it's a strange feeling, but um, I have to kind of accept that. And and as such, I haven't got a, I haven't got really got a, a view on it. It's one of those things, you know. Yeah. As a, in, in the police, you accept that there's an investigation and it will continue as long as it continues. And yeah. and I know how that kind of works, and, and yeah. as you do as well. So um, yeah. it's one of those things I can't discuss because I haven't anything to say about it really. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. It's a tr- it's always a tricky one, isn't it? When when a police officer is is the victim of a crime, you know, uh, they're so used to being privy to uh, all of the ins and outs of an investigation because that's kind of what they do. And then, but then when they become a victim of a crime, then they're treated as a a victim and a, a sort of witness, really. So, so it's yeah, a really it's, good a, point. it's a strange yeah. kind of um, it's a strange you know, feeling, and and I'd like to talk about that later if I remember. Or hopefully, you'll remember about of that flipping that coin of suddenly being in charge of investigations to being to being uh, like part of it as in terms of on being the other victim, end of it being the other end and and how that feels and what i learned about that as well and yeah it's it's i have i have some interesting takes on that well i think they're interesting um, brilliant yeah no, that's, points that's, on that, that we could probably it. talk well, about later yeah definitely we'll come back to that uh, i just suppose finally the other grind rule that we we sort of discussed and, and i was very keen that we that this was the case that you've been through an awful lot and I, and I don't want to stray into territory that you're uncomfortable with um I'm not going to be asking you any sort of anything that that's going to you know be difficult for you to discuss you, anything that you want to talk about is your decision to talk about and I'm certainly not going to be 
kind of probing you in a way that is going to um, you know make things worse for you if that if that makes no, sense. No, it's fine. I appreciate that. There's there's not really many topics that are off the table for me. Um, certainly in terms of like the emotions and the mental health, you can ask me and you can ask me anything you want. Um, I'm not going to be upset by anything you ask me. I just might yeah. answer. I might not answer depending yeah, yeah. on, on what it is. It's not, but it's not a problem there, there aren't many topics for me on yeah. this. Well, Apart from the that. two that you've just discussed around <laughs> the geopolitics and the investigation yeah. that I'm not yeah. willing to, to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. So, and, and, you know, as, as we've, as we've discussed ourselves, um, you know, I've been very open about my own mental health um, challenges, uh, and I discussed that at some length in the very first introductory kind of podcast. Uh, I'm not ashamed of it. It's uh, you know, it's a, it's a fact of life. We're all human, aren't we? And uh, yeah. these things these things happen. So, okay, so probably a good place to start would be just to talk about your your police career. So let's just sort of touch on what you did in your career, when you joined, uh, what your experiences were, what you, you know, the kind of jobs you did um, and all that kind of stuff. So just when, when, when did you join the police? I joined in uh, 2002. So um, <clears throat> just to go back a little bit further from that, just, just very um, yeah, a short, short part of it is it's a, it's the job that I'd always, always wanted to do. Um, I, remember going to kind of employment things at school uh, when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. And, and I would always make a beeline straight for the police table where they would talk about careers and that kind of thing. It, it's the job that I was going to do through, you know, I went to university and, and in university, getting to the end of my degree, I applied for Gloucestershire University, uh, Gloucestershire Police, sorry, mm. um, and uh, got to the interview stage uh, and didn't get in. And I, I regardless of what I was doing educational education wise or everything like that that was going to be my job and so mm. when Wiltshire opened their doors in 2002 uh, I, I jumped on it because I was close so close to Wiltshire so I, I ended up joining 2002. And, so were you and, living in Gloucestershire Is that, was that the reason why Gloucestershire I suppose? Yeah, I was I was staying in Gloucestershire uh, for the degree um, and I, I loved I was in Cheltenham and I loved it and I thought uh, their doors are open. Let me try there, and, and if I can get in there, I'll, I'll stay this way. And, and that didn't work out. And these things mm -hmm. happen for a reason. And I, you know, don't regret trying. And I, it, it didn't matter to me that I didn't mm -hmm. get in because it was an excellent tester for me to see what I needed to do yeah. to get in the next time. But I always, I was always going to resolute that I was going to join the police, and, and Wiltshire right. was the next one for me naturally that opened up, and and that was it for me. And I and I was lucky enough to to get in, and that was uh, two thousand and two, and it was a very it's a very unremarkable story really my my journey through the police it's very normal you know mm. you, you join you you go through your training school and, and back then when I did it there was there were actual training schools that you go away to for 15 weeks I went to uh Bramshaw I think it was somewhere in Hampshire um and did my 15 weeks training and then all the other training sessions that you need to do with in-house with the police and then you get out onto the beat and you're uh, tutored. Um, I was part of uh, the Salisbury City Centre team. Was the tutor team, and that's where you learn your bread and butter, your arrests, your statements, you know, your stop searches, and everything. All those vital bread and butter parts of the, of the policing you were taught there. Um, and then from there, you go on to your response shift, and and it's yeah, it's a very unremarkable story, really. So where were very, you? Where were you standard. first uh, posted to? Where was um, I stayed in Salisbury. So when I joined. Right. The, when I joined Wiltshire, the day I joined Wiltshire, I was fortunate enough to be asked, where did I want to work? And I said Salisbury, because that was the closest city or the closest bigger area of Wiltshire. 
yeah, uh, yeah. for where I was living because I was living south of Wiltshire at the time. So uh, I had a choice of there, Melksham or Swindon, and they were just too far to go um, for me. So I, I was lucky enough to, to choose where I went and I stayed there um, pretty much my entire career, apart from a couple of couple of years where I, I went out and did something else. Um, so one but of, yeah, one very of the, unremarkable. Sorry. One of the other um, kind of ground rules, I'll just to reassure you, uh, as an ex-big city cop, I'm not going to take the piss out of you as a carrot cruncher. <laughs> well, I remember going to the. Uh, I remember going to the uh, help support the Met in during the London riots. Um, I can't remember the year now. You have to forgive me. My brain isn't very. Two thousand eleven. That was two thousand eleven. Yeah, I remember. We, there was a lot of forces that went to support the Met, and the amount of stickers that you would see plastered all over the Metropolitan riot van saying Hampshire <laughs> came to bail out the Met, and Wiltshire <laughs> came. The carrot crunch countries came to. Um, to help the Met kind of thing. So, yeah, no, I I, I, I get that stick. It's so fine. for anybody I'm... anybody who's listening to this who doesn't know what I'm talking about, um, as an ex-Met officer, it's very much a Met thing. This um, They've got uh, a sort of a uh, slightly derisory attitude towards anyone who's not in the Met and uh, particularly towards um, small rural county forces. Um, so they call them carrot crunchers, um, which is generally shortened <laughs> just to carrot. So if so, when I went to the West Midlands, even though it was the second biggest force in the country uh, and full of inner city deprivation, I was told by my Met colleagues that I was going to become a carrot. Uh, so so yeah. Anyway, kind of moving on. So so you went to Salisbury. <laughs> uh, you went to Salisbury, yeah. and um, what was that like when you? What was your memories of sort of, you know, your early days in policing? Yeah, incredibly daunting because you're <clears throat> suddenly wearing this uniform that. Everybody identifies as being um, authoritative and uh, responsible, and, and I was I was 22 then, and, and I felt like I had enough life experience. But it was it was suddenly quite a daunting experience to to have this kind of um, this kind of responsibility, um, and it was and it is a huge responsibility. Um, and I learned I learned a lot, and I very quickly learned a lot um, about myself as well about about what I could, what I could do, and what I could achieve, and and learning to communicate with with people from all walks of life. Um, it was a, it was an amazing experience, and I had some really good people around me to support. And I was lucky enough to go through training school with a number of people who then came with me to Salisbury. So I had those kind of allegiances with um, my colleagues that were in the same position I was, where we were able to kind of talk about it and reflect yeah. on the stuff that we'd done, which is a really nice way of of sharing stories and supporting each other. But it was, um, it was, it was, it was, I loved it. I loved every moment of my time. I've never, I've place. never worked in a, a rural force. Uh, you know, like I said, the first half of my career was in London and the second half in the West Midlands, predominantly Birmingham. Um, and, and, you know, you've got sort of slightly kind of leafy suburbs around the edges of Birmingham, but generally speaking, it's inner, it's inner city or semi inner city. So, yeah. I mean, did you ever get a chance to to work? Because I always said I would love to spend a bit of time in a in a rural force just to kind of see what it was like. Because it's just I never experienced it. And, and equally, did you ever get the sort of did you ever get the sort of um, you know the urge to go and work in a big city or something? Uh, not really. Not really. I, I'd love to have in my time. I'd love to have been able to work in Swindon because um, Swindon for, for Wiltshire, Swindon was the was the metropolitan area. So it is a very busy area, you know, mm. uh, relatively speaking, not comparable yeah. to the places like the likes of London and Manchester and Birmingham. But um, 
but for, for Wiltshire, Swindon was a very, very busy place, um, mm-hmm. close to Bristol as well. And, and, and uh, so there were quite a lot of mutual aid to Bristol from Swindon, but it just was too far for me to travel. I, I, I would have I would have enjoyed it for mm-hmm. probably a couple of months, but the travelling an hour and hour and a half every day there, you know, just to get there to work and then doing yeah. an evening shift or a night shift, it would have been just too much on, on me and my family as well. So I, I, I was... Because where I was living, it was one of those things where I, I didn't have much of a choice of where I worked. I was I was south of Wiltshire, so Salisbury was the first area that I could work, the best area that I could work for me. And then any anything further, anything more than that, I, I had to travel further. And yeah. I get that people have to travel long distances for work, mm. uh, but it just wasn't for me. I just rather stay yeah. close by for me, um, and it gave me enough time. It wasn't so close that. It was on my doorstep, but it was far enough that I could finish a shift and and yeah. drive. 25 minutes half an hour back and by mm. the time I got back I had kind of cleared my mind of work yeah. and was a, was yeah. then able to enjoy home life again so, so what so you, you did what everybody does generally speaking um uh some years in uniform so what, what did you do what was the sort of your next sort of major career step and sort of when did that happen so um I suppose that the, the next key moment for me and it's key because uh of the feelings it gave me was I went into um, a plain clothes, uh, we, we called it the neighborhood tasking team. It was a plain clothes tasking team. Predominantly we dealt with, uh, with drug dealers, um, uh, a lot of county lines. Uh, so yeah, people coming in from metropolitan areas, cuckooing in, in vulnerable people's houses and selling crack cocaine and heroin and all sorts of things. And they were quite nasty people. And so we did a lot of work with that because Salisbury and Wiltshire at that point, it did get hit quite hard because it was a, a, a yeah. rural force yeah. um, and it was deemed to be a an easy target. And mm. um, we were very, uh, we achieved quite a lot with, we were quite successful in, mm. in combating that. Um, and it was it was an amazing experience to do that. We had, uh, it was a team of, it kind of, it, it, the team evolved. So we started off at the very beginning. It started off with a, a bigger team and you had a, a sergeant and then an inspector and that kind of thing. And then it kind of slowly developed into something a little less formal where there was a, there was four of us and we didn't really have, didn't really have, there wasn't a key, a, a structure of uh, rank there or supervisory mm-hmm. roles. So we kind of, did what we wanted to do but we were all on the same page we were all so yeah. enthusiastic and committed to it so just we didn't need anybody time, to keep us on. in terms of a timeline what, what sort of year are we talking about here uh that must have been around about 2009 2010 so i've done about eight eight or nine years ish right. in uniform <clears throat> and i'd felt like i'd i'd you know kind of Mm-hmm. not hit a ceiling I think you'll yeah, yeah, always what, learn in that role do, yeah. but I've, I've done what I wanted to do and I was ready to move on and this this opportunity came up and and I loved it and it it made me feel by the end of it it, it made me feel it, it sounds really silly but it made me feel almost indestructible we were doing so much good work and we felt like we we were indestructible mm-hmm. uh, we put ourselves in some rather precarious positions like you do yeah um, as you do in the police and like you have to do, but yeah, yeah. Um, we always came out on top of it and uh, it made me feel very strong and it made, mm. made me feel almost immortal. It sounds really silly to say it, but like nothing could touch us. And, yeah, uh, I know, I know um, exactly. I know exactly what you mean. Um, you know, we, we felt a bit like that when we were, when I was working in, in Clapham in South London, you know, during the sort of early nineties, you know, you, you very much, you're part of a big team, big teams in those days. 
um, we were very much in control of the streets. Um, yeah. And uh, unlike today, unfortunately, um, you know, and, and we really, you know, not in a oppressive way, but we really owned the ground. You know what I mean? We knew who was doing what. We knew, um, you know, who we needed to sort out, um, who were, was causing, you know, the worst criminal criminality or whatever. So, yeah, um, I know exactly what you mean. And, um, yeah, there's a, there's a sort of a sense of almost invin- invincibility there some, sometimes, which, yeah, but then when you see one of your colleagues getting very badly hurt or shot or stabbed or whatever, then you think, oh, shit, maybe I'm not so invincible after all. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? And then, unfortunately, uh, fortunately, we, uh, we we were never at that stage where we saw saw that. But, um, yeah, that, that feeling of invincibility was... Um, it was quite a strong feeling uh, where you couldn't, you were, you were untouchable almost. And, and yes, we were in, a, we were in, in Salisbury and it's a small place. So it was very easy to do our job. It was very yeah. easy to, to, to identify uh, drug dealers. And it was very mm. easy to identify who we needed to target and who we needed to speak to. It was very easy to, to identify those vulnerable people that were yeah. being cuckooed and, and, and help them as well. So it yeah. was, it wasn't just about targeting drug dealers. It was also about trying to get the help that the uh, the vulnerable people needed yeah. um and it was a, it was a really good job and, and i so did, did that you, for a couple of... did you go into the cid then after that or yeah was... I was, but yeah so i did that for a couple of years and then i went back to uniform for a short stint but at that point i was um i i, I knew i wanted to be a, a, in cid i knew i wanted to be a detective i'd always loved investigating crime um we had we had teams set up to deal with uh investigations if you'd arrest somebody on the street you'd take it back back in and then a team would pick up that investigation and the interview and I always tried my very best to to keep it for myself because I I loved doing it and I I felt like if I kept using these teams and kept doing this then I'd end up becoming de-skilled slightly and I wanted to keep my hand in with everything and and I I just thoroughly enjoyed that process of of investigations and seeing it through from the beginning to the end and seeing how it played out and I knew that I would get a lot of a lot out of working in CID because obviously those investigations you owned them but they were they were long investigations and yeah. they were complex and you had to kind of uh, put a lot into emotionally, put, uh, put a lot of effort into. And were, of, you, were you a sergeant by that stage? No, I wasn't. I was, I, so I joined CID as a DC, I uh, did all my training, uh, passed my, like you had to like a, a temp, uh, training DC and I passed all the, the exams and passed that, passed that training. And I was there for, for a couple of years. Um, I dealt with some very interesting, and, and serious cases and uh, uh yeah dealt with some very uh, some very sad cases as as we all do mm-hmm. um and then from there went to uh i wanted to get promoted so i taken my sergeant's exam and passed it passed the part two exam i was one of the last people to take the part two exams which was uh, or, or just, let's let's pretend as we used to call it yeah let's pretend let's pretend you have every <laughs> every resource imaginable <laughs> to deal with this somebody uh, dry, uh, scooting up and down the pavement too fast uh, yeah so I, I was one of the last people to do that uh, and got through it I think they just didn't want people to um I think they just didn't want me to have to go back through the process again so they said I'll just pass him it'll be yeah. fine um and from there I wanted to get promoted and the next available uh, an available post for me was uh, something which was completely out of my comfort zone which I had no idea about which was a staff officer to one of the uh, senior command team right. up at headquarters and devices and and I and I went for the interview for that and I was don't know why fortunate enough to get it I don't know what they saw in me uh, that they mm. wanted but I still don't know to this day I think they look back at that and think why the hell did we have him <laughs> because I didn't know what I was doing I mean I went up there and uh, they were talking another language 
yeah, um, to me. And, and and I it it felt it, although it's a it's a police organisation, it felt very yeah. much more businessy. And yeah, well, I did. Um, I was a staff officer as well for a short period of time uh, as a sergeant, like you as a sergeant, and um, I absolutely hated every minute of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Hated but it was it. weird because because we I think we all I, I'm certainly uh, aware of this. We we tend to have a preconception of like the ivory tower that kind yeah, of what yeah. they have no idea what it's like up in you know in their ivory tower up in headquarters and it's and i and i had to a certain extent had that preconception because i didn't know what they were doing and it wasn't until i went up there and i realized mm. how motivated enthusiastic and smart these people were working mm. up there and do yeah. everything that they were doing and everything every difficult decision that they were making was they probably had a, had a choice of two options one was a really shit option yeah. And one was a lesser shit option, if you excuse my <laughs> yeah, language. Yeah. Oh, no, uh, no. And and so they had to pick that one. But everything they did was for the benefit of the force. <laughs> and it wasn't until yeah. I it wasn't until I worked up there did I realise how amazing these people yeah. were, both uh uh warranted officers and uh the civilian staff. But so so very, very of, smart uh, people. So much of policing's like that though, isn't it? It's it's very much a case of and this is what the public don't realise, and this is what journalists certainly don't realise, is that very much of what your day involves in the police is is making decisions about would I rather be punched in the head or would I rather be kicked in the nuts, you know what I mean? There's never yeah. a there's never a solution that is absolutely um perfect in any situation, is there? So No, definitely not. No, there isn't. No. And and key and and certainly with the senior command team that they, they, they had that, but just on a bigger scale. And you know, yeah. so you you would you would hear that they'd made a decision and decided to do something, you'd be like, Why they decided that? That's rubbish, why are they making those decisions? And it wasn't until you constantly you went into that environment and you lived mm. that that world do you realize they were yeah. they were making that decision no, they're very very because... smart people aren't they there's yeah. no question and the reason i didn't i was a staffer so i i didn't enjoy the staff officer just because i i missed the operational side of things i think and you know there's a lot of politics as well isn't there in those jobs and um a lot of yeah. dis- dysfunctional politics sometimes as well big lots of big egos and um and i find it odd going from being a sergeant uh you know, I was a big fish in a small in a small pond. So I was a I was a I was a temp inspector actually at the time in Coventry, and then I went to, I thought you know a staff officer might be useful. Um, so I had to go back to being a sergeant again, which was a, a bit of a pain. But it was the <coughs> excuse me, it was the fact that because you were a sergeant, you just um, you were just like nothing. You know what I mean? You 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 would be in meetings with superintendents and chief superintendents and. You know, it was like you were invisible. So I just, I didn't particularly like that aspect of it. You know. Yeah, I, did, I didn't, um, I didn't really have that feeling. Uh, which uh, again, it's a small force, um, and it felt quite family orientated in a way, which sounds a bit cliche and a little bit fluffy, but it did feel like that. And so I never really had those mo- moments where I felt invisible. I wish I had sometimes because when I was being asked questions in some of these meetings, which I hadn't been listening to or, or didn't have a clue what they were talking about, I wish I bloody was invisible, but unfortunately not. But so it was a did. lovely, it was a, it was, it was an amazing job actually. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed working there. I learned a huge amount. And then when I, I did that for a couple of years and then um, landed my dream job as a DS back in CID in Salisbury. So I went back to, right. to my home turf again as a, as a DS uh, managing a team of five and, and, loved it best job in the world so let's let's fast forward then to 2018 um and the incident that where you became um very well known um for all the wrong reasons i suppose (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. um tell me about that day 
Um, how did that day start? I mean, obviously, I appreciate we've we've only got you know an hour or whatever to to chat, but you know, what are your recollections of 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 um, you know that that incident? Um, it was a uh, so it was a Sunday evening. I was on an evening shift, starting at three, doing a three to twelve. I think it was a three to eleven p.m. I can't remember. Very normal shift. Went in. I started my duty. There was nothing for us to, to deal with straight at the time. No live incident. So I started reviewing a case for one of my colleagues and um, had my radio with me and heard that they two people had been found kind of semi-conscious on a bench in Salisbury and they were salivating or frothing from the mouth I think it was described as and uh, police were going down and the paramedics were going down there and and I was just listening to this really um, and it wasn't necessarily anything for for CID it might not have been anything for for the police in general it might have been a medical emergency we were none the wiser but being a nosy bugger that I am and being a little bit bored of what I was doing at that time I decided to walk on down there and just just offer some help. I wasn't. I wasn't going down there to take over. I had no yeah. reason to do that whatsoever. It was being managed by the duty sergeant really, really well, and and the, the, her team. And um, I went down there just to just to have a look and just to see if there was something that would progress to to something more serious. I'd rather so, be on so top by of the it time, before. By the time you got there, had they been scooped up by an ambulance and taken yeah. away, or were, they, or were they still there? No. By the time I got there, the paramedics had already taken them away, and and the scene was very. Um, very uh normal there was nothing sinister there was nothing untoward about it um we had uh the guys the, the patient's coat and his wallet so we found out who he was and that was that was Sergei Skripal uh, and he had a home address a local home address um but again we didn't know what had happened to them and no, nobody did so it was one of those things where we're preparing for something that might not happen but it's better to be prepared and, right. and have everything in place so we kind of I couldn't do much at the scene so I went back to the police station and it kind of evolved from there really um, so and it got more point, serious at what point um you know in those early stages of the of the investigation did it become clear uh, who he actually was in terms of his background <laughs> it was uh, a very uh, yeah I, I remember it very very clearly um so i was talking with uh, the duty inspector had come down we were talking about all the scenes that we were securing and we were talking about going into his house uh, which was a local house in salisbury about just checking it make sure it was secure make sure there were no other patients there make sure there was nothing untoward and we were talking about how we were going to do that and the neighbor had a key because she used to look after i think he had a cat and she looked, used to look after his cat and we were talking about getting her to go into the house with officers present just to make sure so we could go in um, lawfully and just make sure that everything was was okay and the moment we basically I'll never forget it the moment we literally called the officer who was at, at the house like guarding the house to say this is what we want you to do go and get the key go in with the neighbor the neighbor to do, do everything to open the door and everything my uh, colleague uh, DC on my team Google literally googled his name that's all she did she googled his name oh and and then reams of thing of newspaper yeah. articles came up yeah. about him and she just yeah. stopped me in my tracks and said Sarge you're, you're going to want to come and see this and I looked over her shoulder at the screen and saw a picture of Sergei Skripal basically behind bars I can't remember the, mm. the, the what what newspaper article it was but it basically it said that he was a ex-Russian spy who had been released um, on some kind of spy swap um, right. and it was that moment that was like right this is this is more sinister okay. this is a lot more sinister. now we know his background and yeah. the fact that he's he's become unwell for, for no apparent reason this is very sinister okay. um and we without even thinking we we called the officer that was going to go to the house with that neighbor and said don't go in don't yeah. go in and 
I look back at that moment a lot. I reflect on that a lot because I just think about what could have happened if we, if so that just that to, moment had been two minutes later. So just to would have gone in. just to sort of articulate your thinking at that point, um, just so you're clear. I mean, I I, th- I think I'm just you know as an investigator, I understand what why you did, why you said that, but just explain your thinking as to you know what did you think might be there clearly you probably didn't think what was there um but you know what were your, what was your thinking what were your concerns then at that point we had no we we couldn't really determine or know what was there or what could be there but the fact of his background we had mm. to assume that it was we had to uh, we had to assume it was possibly a crime scene so right. we didn't want people traipsing through people it we had to preserve it. preserve the preserve the crime scene as best we could um we, we, we and eventually we did have to go into the house but uh we were we just thought we have to stop that and we just have to just for now just secure the house like you mm. would do with any crime scene we just assume it's a crime scene until we know differently okay. again we didn't know yeah we, we just knew his background we didn't we yeah. didn't know what was happening no, I mean, it was I, just I'm like really... that kind of I, I, you know, I suppose the only reason I ask that question is because there's going to be people listening to this who, who are not police officers, you know. So I, yeah, understand, yeah. I understand why you did that, um, but other people might not. Yeah, no, that. definitely. Yeah, no, I, I, I tend to talk and just assume that people know what the hell I'm talking about. The point about the the point about the stopping that neighbour was uh, is mm. so important because I just that think if that call, if that had been Google if if that that Google had come up two minutes later that neighbour would have gone in would have unlocked the door gone into the open and touch the handle of the door gone into the yeah. house uh without gloves on and uh and it, that's important because of my story of how i became contaminated and it could have been yeah could have been fatal and uh yeah i i, I think about that that moment a lot where we all just without yeah. not even talking about it we just stopped them going in and, and the so, so ramifications you, of not doing that could have been horrific. So you obviously, you know, slowed everything down. Um, you know, started to sort of think about this from a different perspective, i.e., that it's potentially a, you know, a political assassination attempt or a act of terrorism or call it what you want. Um, so, how did that sort of change your involvement, or was this still was this something that was still held uh, and managed by? you guys locally no it it became as soon as we uh put the balloon up so to speak and and told control room this is what we found out about him um it was very much locked down the whole investigation the whole incident was locked down and managed by by control room i think they set up a separate control room just to just to start deep to deal with it um and it made it difficult for us because we were very i was very i wanted i was quite pro i've always been proactive in my job and i was very keen to to keep going and manage it myself as best mm. I could. And, and we were suddenly unable to do that. So it was quite frustrating. There's no criticism. They, they had to do that, but it was difficult from being suddenly involved in it to being cut out of it. And that's effectively what happened. Right. And, and I had the, the, the next few hours was just like a whirlwind, whirlwind really of talking to superintendents, talking to CSI, mm. Uh, talking to the control room um we even got locked out of the, of the log as well the police log they, they right. secured the police log so nobody could just go and look at it and and that included us so we we at that point hadn't then had no control or no idea what was going on with so this from incident a, it was, from an investigative point of view then who 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 took on that at that point because obviously um you know again people listening they won't understand that once things reach a certain threshold then you know that'll be handed over to someone else so who would who picked that up at that point um, so, well, the, the on-call superintendent was a, w- was aware of it. They had knowledge of what was going on. But um, 
to, to manage what was happening on the ground, the uh, duty uh, SIO, the senior investigating officer on call was called out um, and came to Salisbury to then to, to basically manage from, a, from an investigative point of view uh, what was happening on the ground and make sure that everything was being done properly mm-hmm. and correctly and, and by the book and that we weren't going to lose anything uh, or miss out on anything. So, uh, yeah, so my, my role is the, the duty DS was then... Um, then taken over by the thankfully taken over by the SIO who right. came down to, to support okay. us. So obviously, um, you know, it's a matter of public record that you ended up getting contaminated and very seriously poisoned by by the this weapons grade nerve agent Novichok. Um, how did that actually happen? Then, what was the point at which you became contaminated? Uh, I went to the house. We decided to go to the house. Uh, we had to check to make sure there was nobody there. Um, and make sure to, to to check the crime scene. So we um, put on some forensic suits, some some basic PPE, which we had to borrow from the fire station because we didn't have any at the police station. I said borrow. We 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 requisitioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, three of us went to the to the address just to to check it. Uh, and I was the first one through the door, so I, I had the key. I took the key off the officer who was at the scene took the key and went in and uh, later was uh, later found out and was told that the the nerve agent had been smeared or sprayed or whatever it was that they'd done had been put all over the the door handle the front mm. door handle on the outside I think it was and and so my glove I was wearing just latex blue latex gloves like we do and, and apparently I had I was told this that, that my glove was saturated with with nerve agent um, and from there I don't really, I can't say how it got onto my skin, whether it penetrated my glove, whether Mm. I adjusted my, because I was wearing goggles at the time Mm. and I I adjusted my goggles or my face mask and and inadvertently put it onto my skin or my face. I I don't know, but um, uh, yeah, that's, that's basically basically what happened. You'll never, you'll never know. I mean, this is, we're talking about one of the most toxic substances on earth, isn't it? So, uh, uh, so, so yeah. So at what point, at what point did you sort of start to feel um, unwell? Um, I started, I started to feel unwell um, almost immediately. Well, not unwell. I didn't feel unwell immediately. Um, I was, my, my, my pupils were like pinpricks almost immediately after leaving the house. Um, and, so, and I'd never seen them like that before. And it, was, and it looked quite horrible, actually. Um, but I didn't take much notice of it. And I was sweating as well. And I, and I felt exhausted. But I put it down to just being exhausted because it was a long, stressful shift. Yeah. I didn't think much of it. I went home that, that night. Oh, sorry, the following morning. Um, still feeling the same. Uh, I took it upon myself to call the hospital the local hospital in the Monday afternoon um, explained who I was, my symptoms and what I had been dealing with the night before. And, and I was lucky enough to go up and get seen straight away. And they checked my vitals and said, everything seems to be normal. They couldn't explain why my pupils were the way they are, mm. but I felt quite a lot of comfort from that thinking, well, I've been checked over. So I, I'm okay. Uh, I went home and had a very normal evening Monday night, but it was Tuesday, Monday, overnight Monday into Tuesday where things took a turn where uh, I, uh, was hallucinating. I was just sweating profusely. Um, I, I, yeah, I had some. I, I didn't sleep. My my mm. vi- my vision was completely askew. It had gone off. I, I, it's very difficult to ex- describe my, my the way my vision was. Um, and then I started throwing up Tuesday morning, and that's when I started feeling 
properly unwell but also mm. absolutely terrified because yeah, i had yeah. never felt like this did, before and i was and, and trying to write and did it occur to you that um you know you'd been contaminated or could you just did you just not understand what was happening um i didn't understand what was happening i i i can't really remember now what i thought might be the case um it i think it was too a ridiculous thought to think that i'd been poisoned by something and by that point still by then i didn't i was none the wiser as to what had happened to uh, the to the other two other patients and how it come about so i didn't really know it was that anything was possible at that point mm. um uh, and that was terrifying because yeah. i just i just had no idea of how i was feeling was horrible and had no mm. idea and i ended up going into hospital tuesday morning mm-hmm. um straight to a and e and was put in a side room uh and I was checked by a number of doctors, a number of blood tests were taken. There were a lot of people milling around. My wife came up, she she left work and she came up after an hour or so of me being there because she had to go on to work. Um, and she has reminded me that there were just so many people milling around A&E, so many doctors and consultants, which was strange anyway. Um, and then I was taken up to, to intensive care. And that was when I was told at that point, so kind of, lunchtime-ish Tuesday, right. late uh, afternoon Tuesday, I was told, I was, somebody sat with me and said, you have got a uh, ner- nerve agent called Novichok, something I'd never heard of before, mm-hmm. nobody would heard of before. Uh, you have it in your blood system and we need to give you uh, uh, like the antidote for it, which I can't remember what it was called, but that's something to, right. to, to fight it along with other different um, treatments to, to combat various different yeah. symptoms and various different things. And, and at first I was told um, it's it's going to be okay. You'll be fine. We'll, we're going to keep you in here 24 to 48 hours to monitor you. And we're going to give mm. you a dose of this antidote and we'll see how you are. And uh, that two days turned into two and a half weeks and, yeah. and it, so when nasty. you were when you were actually told that and it was confirmed, you know, conclusively that it was a nerve agent, um, it's probably a stupid question, but I'll ask it anyway. Uh, how did you actually feel when you were told that? Um, I, I was absolutely terrified because it's the stuff of films, isn't it? It's the stuff mm. of movies and it's the stuff of books. Um, you don't ever think it's going to happen, um, and it was terrifying because you don't know how it's going to play out. And I did for my whole time in hospital. I didn't know how it was going to play out. Um, I knew that the two other patients were in a critical way. They were uh, in comas. Did you know um, how poorly the scripts were before you went to hospital yourself? Uh, I think yes, because we'd been up to the hospital to get an update on them on the Sunday night whilst I was at work and. We knew, we, again, we didn't know what was wrong with them. I don't think anybody did, but we knew that they were in a critical situation. Um, uh, but that, that, was, that was about it. We, we, we didn't know much more than that because right. the hospital, at that sound, were still trying to ascertain what, what had happened to them and what was going on. So it was difficult for them as much as it was difficult for us to, to really understand it. And so I went into hospital knowing that they were there, knowing that they were very, very poorly, but not not really sure what with until I was then told uh, this is this is what was in my system and so obviously it was the same for them but they were uh, in more critical situations than me in that in that they were in um, uh, comas whether self-induced comas or, right. or unconscious I, I'm not 100% sure but they were basically they were next to me I was put in a room in ICU uh, a private room and the other room 
private room next to me, which I there was a window, the blind was always down, but that was where one of them was. I think it was Yulia was in there, and um, mm-hmm. so I was that close to to her yeah. and her condition yeah. without ever knowing, though obviously not being able to know yeah. how she was. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very strange. So you were there for how long? Two, two, two and a half weeks, did you say? Two and a half weeks I was there for, yeah. yeah. And and um, was your condition, um, did, did you feel really, really poorly for that entire period of time or did you start to kind of gradually feel better? How, how was, in terms of the, tra- the trajectory of your illness, what did that look like? Um, I felt very, very ill for quite a while. It's very difficult to explain this. Um, it's very difficult for me to separate the physical illness of being poisoned with nerve agent and the, the mental and the um, and the emotional impact that, that that had and everything else that was going on because it mm. was suddenly becoming a global story and my name was then released to the to the public. Um, and so to separate to separate the two is very difficult for me. Um, People ask me quite often, what, how, how does it feel to be poisoned with a nerve agent? Which is a very strange question to be asked. Um, and it's a very I difficult think, one I to think, answer. I think I'm going to have asked you that question as well, Nick. Yeah, well, it's a very difficult one to answer. And, um, <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, so I'm just, um, Ale- Alex, Alexei Navalny, um, who obviously who was the, uh, the Russian opponent who was poisoned um, with, a, with a nerve agent, he, expl- he described it perfectly better than better than I describe it he basically said it doesn't hurt you don't really know what's happening to you you don't feel pain but you feel like your life is being taken from you and that's that's how it felt for me um so it was it was a terrifying experience but but amongst the 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 the, the physical Mm. pain the physical the, the discomfort uh, was this massive trauma, emotional and mental trauma that we were facing because of it, because it was it was blowing up. This whole story was blowing up, and and it was impacting on on not just me but my family, my wife, my kids, my my parents, my sister, you know, everybody, my friends and family. It was, and it and it just became so so, so big to deal with that yeah. I end up ended up going to like a survivor mode. I yeah. remember then just shutting out physically, shutting out any treatment, any symptoms, any pain that I might have had. Mm. Um, and I could only focus on one thing, and that was actually my my wife and kids. That's the only thing that I f- could focus on. Everything yeah. else was just too big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to deal with. Yeah, um, I'm I'm slightly conscious of the time because um, you know you've been really generous with your time, and I don't want to. I mean, it's a fascinating story, and you could probably do a dozen podcasts just on this, but obviously that's not feasible. So, if we can just fast forward then to. Um, Clearly, you were released from hospital, um, and you had some presumably ongoing kind of medical treatment after that. Would that be fair to say? Uh, you know when I left hospital, apart from being, I, I, I had to, to to go to a neurologist. I, I had various different appointments and checks, but there wasn't really any treatment. Once it was out of my system, it was out of my system, hmm. and uh, nobody could say there's going to be no long-term effects because there was a, there were no case study there was no blueprint for this um really um mm-hmm. so it was one of those things where you kind of just had to yeah see what happened um, yeah, which yeah. was horrible in itself but yeah. uh, as time went by physically I, I felt better and better and better but emotionally right. mentally I, yeah. I i dipped uh, yeah. massively so 
Um, how how was the job with you? How was the police as an organisation with you? Incredible. Hmm. Is there any way I can describe it? Um, uh, they we're, we're a small force. Uh, they knew me anyway, so I'd been working. I, I'd been work, not not that it mattered. They would have done this for anybody, but I'd been working with uh, alongside the the DCC um, and the chief uh, for a couple of years. Um, up a headquarters so they did know me anyway not like like I said not that that mattered they would have done the same for everybody but because it was a small force it does sound like I said it does sound a little bit cliche it does sound a bit fluffy to say that, that there was a feel like a family orientated kind of feeling about the force mm-hmm. um, and that really stepped up and uh, again like the, the, the policing family I, I, I knew that that term existed yeah. I kind of bought into it a bit a little bit but it wasn't until this happened where I actually truly understood what it meant and and the police were inc- the force was incredibly supportive and um emotionally financially mm-hmm. they had to be supportive of us as well because of the the, the the later things that happened around our house cars and belongings and that kind of thing so every every avenue that what I went down emotionally or, or yeah. whatever um they were there to kind of yeah. To, to support so, and again so they, were, they were making it up as they went along as well because they'd never dealt with this so yeah, that they course. were having to adapt constantly to, to so i believe um on. i believe from stuff i've read that you you actually had to leave your home and all of its contents and all of your kids stuff and everything is that right yeah yeah so the the the, the house we didn't go back to i didn't go back to the house uh, the kids and the wife were thrown or basically told they had to leave the house whilst in the, i was in the hospital i wasn't there to help them kind of pack that pack up some belongings not knowing whether we would go back to the house or if we were allowed to when it was going to be and moved into a, a rental house which is where I met them when I left hospital in this rental house and um yeah and and it was it transpired that we, di- we didn't go back to the house uh, and then we had to we were then so we, so we told to the said to the kids we're not going to go ho- we're not going to go to our old home but we will we will get a new home and we will fill our new home with all of all of your belongings and all of our belongings so it's different walls a different area but it's going to be it's going to feel like home and then only yeah. a couple of weeks later to tell them uh we can't do that because all of our belongings have to be destroyed because oh, they can't God. they can't say that it's going to be safe to to have them back they oh, can't God. clean right. everything that's in our house so the most efficient way to to deal with it was to to, oh, to destroy it sounds quite cutthroat to say it that way yeah, but yeah. It, it, that's how it was well, I've, you know, as we've discussed, I've got, you know, I've got four kids, two older ones and two younger ones. And, you know, I can't even imagine what that would be like having to say that to your kids. So, I mean, yeah, how, how did they, I don't want to push you into uncomfortable territory, Nick, but how did they kind of deal with all of that? Um, it's not uncomfortable territory. They were amazing. Kids are incredibly resilient um, and our kids are incredibly resilient. And we were always honest with them. We never gave them into the, you know, we never gave them the finer detail of what was going on. They didn't need to know that, but we were honest with what was going on, um, and they took it in their stride. And yes, they're they're kids. They 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 had wobbles, understandably. Mm-hmm. Christ, we had wobbles as adults. They're going to have wobbles as kids, but they were they were amazing and and uh, yeah, just awe inspiring yeah. really yeah. to see how they how they coped at that age with what was going on. Mm. As well as being back at school and trying to be normal and trying to carry on with all this normal stuff, <laughs> dealing with all that as well outside, um, amazing. amazing. So, so when, um, um, how long were you actually sort of off work for then after this all happened? Um, you know, how long did it take before you felt that you were ready to kind of go back to work in some capacity? I went back to work 
on uh, in January 2019. So I was off from March 2018 all the way through for that year and said, uh, I want to I want to go back. I want to start a fresh new year. Let's get 2018 out of the way. I want to go back. Uh, the police, again, were incredibly supportive of this. Um, they wanted me to come back and try, but they wanted me to do what was right. So they gave me all the time I needed, um, which was fantastic. And I went back in January um, to do a just just to go back into the environment. So I actually went back up to Devizes um, and mm. uh, just to be back in that environment. And I was there for a few months before it just was mm. too difficult. Yeah. It was just too difficult to deal with. I, I couldn't be, but I, could, I struggled so hard to be back in that environment again. Yeah. Um, and did you did you feel, um, you know, genuinely ready to go back to work, or did you? Was it something you just? Was it a case of you just wanted some normality back in your life? I mean, to what extent? I suppose the question is, to what extent, you know, did you feel a hundred percent ready? Because I know in the past I've struggled with things and I probably should have taken time off and, and, but I've gone back because I just, you know, you just, there's that sort of push me, pull you thing about the professionalism you want, you want to be there to support your colleagues, but equally you need to look after yourself. So, you know, how, what was that decision like for you? Um, I can't say that I felt a hundred percent ready to go back. Mm-hmm. I, I can say I felt ready. It felt like the right time to get to, to go back in January. And it was one of those things where I have to just go and try um, I didn't know how it was going to play out, but I felt I felt ready to try again. Yeah. And uh, you have to try these things, and uh, and it didn't work out. And I tried mm-hmm. another two times after that. I was off then for a little bit longer to try and kind of reset and get my head straight, and mm-hmm. went back a second time and did a slightly different role, uh, more local to where I, uh, so not a headquarters, but in Amesbury near Salisbury, and uh, did something a little bit different to what I'd been doing before uh, mm. and I was there each time I went back three times and each time I was there for a shorter amount of time mm. um, it just got shorter and shorter the amount of time before yeah. I was just like I can't I can't be here anymore I can't I mm. can't do this and yeah. the third time I went back I knew when I went back on the third time I knew it was over uh, mm. I knew it was over the set when, when I when I came off when I went off set the second time and I played I paid a lip service the third time I was like I've got to just try one more time I've got to try it for myself and for my family and for everybody. Yeah. I need to try one more time. But I knew it wasn't going to work. I knew mm. that it was over for me, but I had to just give it one last push. And I was there only a few weeks on the third occasion before mm. I was just like, I, I can't do it. I, I can't do this. And uh, mm. then went off and then we went down the process of medical retirement, which um, which I got back mm. in October last year. Uh, so, yeah, so... Uh, I, I did try. Yeah. <laughs> I did try oh, very bless, hard to, to oh, make it work, you. Bless you. Um, but it's, it um, but it just it just didn't work out. It couldn't work for me anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think when I I remember seeing that announcement um, on in the in the media, you know, when you when you left, and I remember just feeling so sad um, about the whole situation, thinking, you know, because there's so many of the things I'd heard about you, um, you know, from other people. Um, and this is why it's kind of weird to be talking to you now. So, so many of the things I'd heard about you were so fantastic. You know, I mean, you were this sort of really dynamic, um, go-getting, professional, really up for it. You were very much the kind of go-to person, you know. God, who told um, you that? <laughs> and, yeah, so it's, you know, and I've seen this happen before, mate, as well, um, you know, with people I've worked with before on the job. So... But it sounds to me as if you'd really 
you'd really agonised over that decision, and 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 but ultimately, it wasn't to be, was it? So yeah, no, I did ag- It was agonising over it, and uh, uh, there was it was it was trying to it was trying to hold everything around me. I don't mind saying everything around me felt like it was falling to pieces. Everything mm. I was at my lowest, and I had I felt like I had no control over anything, and I try to grab hold of something that I thought I could have control over, which was my job. Mm. I thought I could force myself to make that work, to just gain that little bit of control over my life. And uh, it didn't, um, it didn't work. Um, Mm. uh, And it was, it was a, yeah, you know, and, and, you know, my, my story is very unique, but people, police officers and people go through this kind of, this kind of emotional trauma for different reasons all the time where they where they mm. physically can't or mentally they can't yeah. be in the right place to go and do their job whether it be in the police or emergency services and yeah. it's a horrible feeling and I, and I feel for everybody that has to go through that um yeah. it's it's horrible because you grieve for your job as well yeah. you know I'd wanted to do that job for as long as I can remember and I, and I grieved for it as well yeah. um that I'd lost something that I loved doing and always wanted to do and wanted to retire naturally at the age of Whatever it was that the government said that we could in the end, I can't remember. But I wanted it's about to ninety eight, isn't it? Now, yeah, something, something like that. Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, wanted wanted to finish my my complete my career in the police, um, yeah. and it was taken away from me. And you know, yeah. sounds a little bit dramatic, but it was. Uh, it was taken away from me, mm. and it was there was a bit of grieving for that. But um, mm. you know, I've I kind of got past. I've reset, and I've got past that now that that kind of grieving period Mm. i say grieving period that sounds very dramatic you know people grieve Uh, i I never lose sight of the fact that someone died um during the novichok incident Um, and so my grieving for my job is very very non-comparable to how that family must be and i and i think about them a lot about what they must be going through yeah and Um, i was going to i was going to touch on that because i think it would be remiss of me if i hadn't done that was that you know we need to remember in all of this that um two further people were poisoned by yeah. shock in, in Amesbury back in uh, later on June, uh, and very sadly, uh, one of them, Don Sturgis, um, died um, yeah. of of her of her sort of you know of her injury, so to speak. So so yeah, I just very very sad. Um, and and I suppose you know there, but for the grace of God, go go you and and the Scripples, isn't it really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um... Yeah, I didn't know Dawn. I'd never met her before, um, and I think about her every single, nearly every single day. I think about her and I think about her family. It's uh, mm. yeah. So, so I, I, people may listen to this and think, "Oh God, it's a tale of woe," and he's sorry for himself. Yes, to to a certain extent, but I never lose sight of how lucky I am as well, and and how horrible it must be for for Dawn's yeah. family to go yeah. through that and and not have the answers because I haven't got the answers as mm. a victim of crime technically I haven't got the answers but but they haven't and their frustration and their upset must be off the scale around mm. this about not knowing and not getting the answers that they want and the yeah. justice that they want so right right just to bring you back right at the start of um, our chat you, you said you, you sort of like to come back and talk briefly about um you know what it feels like to be on the other end of a criminal investigation having been the investigator and then you are effectively the the victim, you know. Is yeah. that, was that a weird feeling? It, it was a weird feeling, um, and it's for me, it's all around uh, this thing of control over your life again. And uh, so we were very much waiting, sitting, you know, in the early, certainly in the early days, and throughout, waiting for information, waiting for updates, waiting to be told what was going on. 
And I mean, I spent days in our in our rental house, literally spent days pacing up and down the house, just waiting for someone to call to tell me, to give me an update on the investigation, to give me an update on something, because our life felt like it was on hold. And, and I, it was a horrible, horrible feeling. And I, and I look back now at my time in the police and my time as DC, or it doesn't matter, it didn't have to be a DC, but you'd, you'd go into work and you'd get told, oh, by the way, Mr. or Mrs. Smith or Mr. and Mrs. whoever have, have called for the fifth time this week mm. asking for an update on their case. And you'd just be like, oh, yeah. dare I say it, it felt like a bit of a nuisance. You're like, I, 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 can't, I can't help them at the moment. I, you know, for, for whatever reason, we all have you know, too many jobs to deal with and it was difficult to manage everyone's expectations. But yeah. I look back now at, at people, victims of crime, who whose lives are on hold because of something horrible has happened yeah. to them. And, and, that's, and that's particularly the case now with COVID, isn't it? In post-COVID, you know, yeah. pe- people are waiting for, people are, victims of crime are going to be waiting for years before they see justice, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And I, 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 I feel... I understand their frustration about about pacing around the house, about phoning the police station, trying to speak to me or to to a colleague to to try and get an update, and 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 the times that they would have picked up the phone to phone again for the second or third time that day and stop themselves because like I don't want to be too much of a nuisance. Yeah. I I understand that that now, and it's if I if I'd known that, that that emotional feeling about what people how how it affects people that. Your your hands are in you know your life is in somebody else's hands. Your your life is on hold because of this mm. horrible thing has happened, and it's bad enough as it is. But then all you want is to move forward, and by moving forward, you're getting it means getting information and and the case moving forward, and mm. and not and not getting that information for whatever reason. Um, I if I'd known that when I was a police officer, um, mm. I, mean, I always dealt with my victims as as best as I possibly could. But I would be yeah. a lot more sympathetic to how they must be feeling when they yeah. phone for the fifth time that week. Yeah. It's because they are genuinely distraught. They are yeah. genuinely frustrated and upset, and they just need that piece of information to yeah. keep them going for the next few days. It's, yeah. it's it was a huge kind of revelation for me yeah. in a way. It sounds a little bit over the top, but it was it was a huge thing to, to yeah. be on the other no, side I, of that. I totally agree, and and I think I I've probably been guilty of that as much as anyone has, and that's just uh, the fact that you know we're 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 very busy, you know, as as investigators with a very heavy caseload, um, you know, and and that that sort of tap never gets, as you know, that tap never gets turned off, you know, that the the tsunami of particularly when I was in child abuse investigations as a, yeah. as a DI, you know, that tsunami of referrals and cases just never stops. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and you're conscious that there's a human being behind every single one of them yeah. uh, and a family, uh, very often a grieving family or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, yeah. but, uh, and that's, that, I think that's, that's part of what creates a lot of the stress in the job actually is that sort of that tension between wanting to do the right thing for everyone. Um, but just physically there just aren't enough hours in the day you know a lot of yeah. the time yeah but um listen um we're just gonna just very briefly um i mean i'm just really conscious that this is fascinating and you could we could talk all day but in the day you've got a life and i don't want to kind of you know intrude into your life any more than i need to um no, don't worry but the i suppose the, the question for me is it's kind of what next really so what, what are your uh, what are your what are your plans nick so I uh, retired in October last year. I had a bit of a, uh, I had a bit of a challenge around my 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 pension, that kind of thing, which came to an end 
probably a few weeks ago. Um, and by that point, I kind of reset enough and I'd, and I'd spent enough time getting over the fact that I was going to be in the police, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And decided that I need to do something. Um, and I decided that instead of letting the Novotok incident define me in a negative way, I was going to treat it. And I, and I try this sound this this may sound flippant, but I tried to treat it as a bit of a of a of a gift in a way. In that I've learnt a lot about myself, um, and I'm a different person to what I I used to be. Um, and I learned a lot about my emotions and my mental health and my resilience. And if I can in some way use that experience and use those lessons learned to help somebody or, or some people or through consultancy, through talking, mm-hmm. to, to do, to, doing talk, talks, doing podcasts like this and, and, and getting my story out there. My story itself is unique, but it has a shelf life. I know, know that mm-hmm. if I just talked about the whole Novichok incident, people will get very bored very quickly, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I don't lose sight of that. But intertwined in that is, uh, is a the human element, which is the mental health aspect, which is, let's face it, globally one of the most debilitating, disabling illnesses around and uh it needs to be talked about it needs to be addressed and embraced um and i feel like i might have something that i can offer people with that so i'm going to be doing i'm hoping to do some talks i'd love to do some more podcasts because i thoroughly enjoy them um i'd like to do some talks um and i do some bit of consultancy stuff um around helping people and and maybe doing some training that kind of thing i I don't know yet i i'm it's one of those things where you come out of a job and you you have got no idea what your skills are and how to transfer them then you suddenly realize there's a big big world out there of opportunities and i've got a chance to do something good and and ingrained in me is this wanting to help people i'll never do something that and just because i'm not in the police doesn't mean i can't continue that in some way so yeah definitely and i think i think in a weird sort of way whilst you you and i have you know we've done very different things and our our sort of life story and journey has been very different I understand exactly what you're saying. It's very because I came out of the police after a very long time, you know, thirty years, and and then you have to sort of slightly reinvent yourself. And but what you do realise very quickly is that there's a there's a whole load of opportunity out there. There's all sorts of things that are that you can bring all of those skills that you had in policing um, to bear. And and you actually, and this is what I'd say to anybody, any police officers out there who are listening to this, don't underestimate how good you are. You know, because very often when you're in the police for a long time, you sort of you sort of put business or other parts of, of commercial world on a bit of a pedestal and you think, oh, yeah, I don't really understand it and blah, blah, blah. Actually, um, when you go into business, you realise just how good police policing is. You know, you realise just how amazing, what amazing skills police officers um, have. Um, it's, uh, uh, so, so, yeah, you've got tons of tons of opportunity. And, 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 you know, I, for one, I'd like to work with you, mate. Um, you know, I've got some uh, things I'm working on at the moment where I think, I think you'd be it's a conversation outside this podcast, obviously. But you know, one of my concerns at the moment is that is that there's an awful lot of very young and not necessarily young, but certainly very inexperienced police officers are going to be coming into the organisation over the next sort of three to four years. Uh, an awful lot of experience leaving it, and and I think um, there's a real urgent requirement to help those people understand what good policing looks like, and and you're not going to get that purely through you know, um, college of policing, online learning or something like that. You know, that you, I think there's definitely a role for people like you, people like me, uh, who've got a whole career worth of experience to pass on. So, yeah, anyway, we can talk yeah, about that. We can talk about that another time.
Um, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I'd love to. Yeah. Listen, Nick, um, constant time. I'm going to be the doghouse as well because um, Mrs. D is taking the, the miniature Ds out for um, a picnic and uh, I've got to look after our dogs because that's, that's basically what she thinks I'm worth. Is that I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, not invited to the picnic, but you no, can stay no, here no, no, it's far too, far too much enjoyment for me. Um, <laughs> listen, can I just say, um, I find this absolutely fascinating, I find it really enjoyable. Um, it's been lovely getting to know you, and, and I'm really, really looking forward to chatting to you again at some point in the yeah, future. No, I, and um, why don't we yeah. why don't we get back together again in another few months' time, maybe? And uh, you know, the, it'd be really interesting to hear about how things are going for you. And um, yeah, you definitely, know, I'd love to. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this process. Oh, um, and uh, you've made it very easy for me, and you are a very nice chap. And oh, I'd love you. to talk to you. And keep, <laughs> let's keep dialogue. Let's keep dialogue open. That's very very kind of you. All right, listen, Nick. Thanks a million. Um, I'll uh, I'll just stop the uh, podcast now but we can have a little chat once this is finished all right so there you go everybody the uh fantastic nick bailey absolutely brilliant to speak to him sorry about my really crap ending to his interview in terms of uh segueing into saying goodbye i think i might have to uh, try a little harder on that in the future so i think you've probably figured out by now that one of the key aspirations that i have for the book and for this podcast is to help people understand the humanity of police officers, the fact that they are um, trying to do a very difficult and often dangerous job in chaotic circumstances. And, um, you know, certainly my experiences of working with many, many thousands of police officers over the years is that the overwhelming majority, overwhelming majority, are people like Nick. Um, Clearly they've had different experiences than Nick, but I think you can... Here for yourself, the impact of having to deal with something like that, the impact that that's had on him and his family and his health and his future. So, um, so yeah, so just before I uh, wrap everything up, just to let you know, I've been offered a book deal with Bite Back Publishing, which I'm absolutely delighted about. Um, so Bite Back are, describe themselves, I think, as the leading publisher of political and current affairs books in the UK. So um, really, really pleased about that. I've got my first meeting with uh, the editor next week. So yeah, watch this space. Anyway, listen, leave you to it. This has been a really long one, but hopefully it's been worth your investment of time to listen to it. I look forward to catching you again next week. All right, bye. street we used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat but now we never see him it really makes us frown no longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town oh. Ooh.